What is a producer's rep? It's like a sales agent. It's another name for a sales agent. So um, in the it usually connotes being a domestic sales agent as opposed to an international sales agent. It's a little different in that as a producer rep, you are selling films to US distributors. And in doing so, there's you don't really have to take over the film from the filmmaker. You can make the deal, you can negotiate on their behalf, and then they can deliver the film to the distributor and the distributor can pay them directly. It's a fairly easy transaction. Whereas on the international front, international sales agents really have to take over that process. So international sales agents are more like distributors in that you deliver them the film and then they go to markets around the world, sell these distributors, and then in turn deliver the film to those distributors, collect that money, and then account to a, um, a producer. So in my case, I don't do it. I don't do that. I specialize in U.S. distributors, and um, as most producer reps do, and I'm just I'm like a I like a consultant slash sales agent for that purpose. What's the difference between a producer's rep and a distributor? So a producer rep is really trying to get the filmmaker the best deal possible in the United States with a with a traditional distributor. Um, distributors are, are taking on the film, putting it in theaters, putting it on video on demand, making Blu-rays, selling the rights to Netflix or HBO, and putting on advertising video on demand later like Tubi or Pluto. So they, they're usually, most distributors are handling all rights that way. As a producer rep, I'm meeting the filmmaker usually about the time they've finished the film or about to get into a film festival or just got into a film festival and I'm gonna help them get into the world of distribution and show the film to the distributors to see who would be the best possible partner for taking the film out. Why would a filmmaker hire a producer rep? Well, especially if you're a first-time filmmaker, um, most schools don't teach film distribution. And so there's just a huge learning gap um, uh, in terms of like what distribution is and what they do. And, and usually I consider my part of my job is education in terms of teaching my clients what distributors do and which distributors do it better than who. Um, and part of my job is to know who's doing it legitimately and who's not doing it le legitimately and who takes an appropriate distribution fee for putting the film out into the world, who's kind of the, trying to rip them off. Um, and so it's to protect them as well. Um, so there's there's really just the knowledge of distribution. That's one reason. Another is just protection. Um, uh, and in, in addition, some salesmanship. Um, I'm trying to get the best possible deal out there. And some filmmakers, you know, a filmmaker in, in, in theory could wear all those hats. If they got to learn the distribution landscape and learn who all the distributors are and learned how to negotiate these the contracts and had a sales hat in addition to a creative hat, there are those types, right, that, that could do it all. Um, I'm here for the ones that don't, you know, and producer reps in general are there for the people who, who can't, you know, that need some help in that, in that area. Have you ever experienced that where someone says, you know, I went to AFM, I go on IMDb Pro and I see what similar films are, who they're with, and I just can't navigate this. Can you help me? Yeah, all the time because there's, um, there are a lot of different kinds of people at AFM. Like there are sales agents versus distributors. Sometimes they do both. 
there's been an increasing trend of some international sales agents getting into U.S. distribution. Their contracts look a little bit different than what U.S. distributors agreements look like. Um, and so, um, yeah, I get it all the time that uh, from filmmakers, you know, A, they can't get the distributors to call them back. Um, you know, there are some distributors that are pretty good, have an open door policy of looking at lots of material. And there's some distributors that just want to really use the system of agents and reps that are out there to, to kind of be a um, kind of a buffer against all the content that's out there. They don't need to see 10,000 movies this year. They want to look at the top three or 400 in which to choose the 20 they might distribute that year. So um, it just, yeah, most, most filmmakers, um, when they go to AFM, AFM is a great learning process. But it's not a great, really a t great tool for an independent filmmaker to go to and actually sell their own film. It usually um, they experience it once. They'll they'll find it's really hard to get in those doors to meet with distributors. And most distributors and sales agents want to uh, keep keep the wolves at bay, so to speak. Right. So if a filmmaker says, "Well, I'm very hands-on and DIY. I'll, I'll I'll be the one to break through," it's kind of like they're breaking protocol a little bit. That's not how it's yeah, done. Yeah. It's, well, it, it's not that it's not okay. Um, it's just that there are there are some companies that it's just hard to get a return phone call. They're just busy dealing with the reps and agents for film, and they're they're getting some of these companies are getting five, six submissions a day. And some of them, they just completely ignore. They just look at it and think, I don't know what that is. There's just, there's just too much incoming. Um, so it helps to have someone that knows them that says, hey, I can vouch that this is something you should take a look at. It's not crazy for you to look at this. You may not like it. You may love it, but it's something you should you know, pay attention to. Um, you know, that, that's one aspect of it. But it, even more than that, um, there are some doors that it's they're easy to get into, but you shouldn't go through them, right? There's some people that just don't have your best interest at heart. There are just a, there's a lot of, um, in my opinion, companies that just don't do it properly and take exorbitant fees, um, don't cap their costs, don't do things that they should do to 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 help their the, their client, the filmmaker, um, you know, maximize revenues for them as well as for the company that took on the film. So. Um, um, yeah, so there's, there's multiple reasons to have a rep. Um, I think, you know, beyond just being able to get in the door. Um, but I, you know, I've, I've known, there, there are also people that make film after film after film and establish relationships where they can just do that themselves as well, especially first time, second time filmmakers that have the hardest time, which are most independent filmmakers. Um, at the end of the day, of the of the ten thousand made a year, it's nine thousand plus that are either that are first timers, um, you know, to to a certain degree. So it's not just um, helping you get in the door; it's also maybe helping you uh, stay away from doors that are open that yeah, maybe shouldn't yeah. be venturing into. For sure, and and even if you knew, it's also maximizing the best possible situation. Um, even if you get in all the right doors, um, you know. It's helpful to have someone that's had a, a, a deal through this distributor and had a film through this streamer and knows what it's like to be in bed with them. To know you know, how good are they at communication? How good are they at returning your phone calls? Um, what do their royalty reports look like? Um, do they send them to you consistently? Because it's not only the contract you have to worry about, it's the behavior behind the contract. 
right? Because it's fairly easy for distributors to kind of ignore a lot of different aspects of their contract because it's just the distribution contracts are just hard to sue on. They're all very distributor friendly. Distributors are not going to make overtly producer-friendly contracts in general. Um, so even more important than the contract is, is the habits and behavior. And you know, have been in the business for 25 years. I've just seen a lot of a lot of behavior, <laughs> so to speak. So um, um, I think that's pretty helpful. Sure. And these are these are contracts that only the distributor draws up. Someone couldn't say, I I've actually have my own boilerplate contract. Yeah, no, they, they, it's always <laughs> the distributor's mine. contract. Okay. In fact, you should be actually wary if it's not their contract because that probably indicates they don't know better and they haven't been doing it very long. I have seen that before where I, I got it actually not too long ago. Someone came to me with a film and they already had an offer from someone. And I said, okay, um, did, they have a, did they send you a contract I could look at for you? And they said, no, they wanted us to sit and do the contract. I said, well, they can't be that sophisticated if, they, if they're out there acquiring films and wanting you, know, you to come up with the contract. That's just pretty, pretty, it's a good sign that they're just not very savvy. Glenn, how do you get paid? Please tell us. A couple different ways. Um, so um, always a commission, um, a percentage of whatever my filmmaker makes. So if there's an advance from uh, the distributor or royalties paid later on, I usually get a commission on whatever, and, and that's, that's a negotiable commission, uh, depending on the circumstances of the film, whether it's already in a major festival or if I'm working on it from the beginning, we can negotiate what the commission is. Um, often I also work for a consulting fee as well, um, because I spend, you know, most producer reps, I would say, um, you know, tend to throw films against the wall, see if they stick, if they don't make the deal, move on. Um, I deal with very much true independent films that need a lot of hand-holding and a lot of tender loving care. And so I fashion myself as both kind of a producer rep and a consultant. So I'm usually paid an upfront fee in addition to my commission, really to help with the fact that I'm gonna negotiate the contract. I'm gonna handle all that. I'm gonna spend time with them to make sure they understand the industry, understand the buyers, you know, help out maybe getting them an international sales agent. So I try, to, I try to fashion myself as kind of a distribution consultant and a producer rep. Are all your fees uh, like one-time fees or are there any that are continual? Just one time. One it's time, okay. just one time. Yeah, it's usually an upfront fee. And then um, in the way I do it, I don't, I don't put a term on my, my deals. I'm, I feel like I, I'm hired for however long it takes me to get the film distribution um, or a festival. I'm also brought on as a festival advocate quite often. So it's part of the, the fee structure is that I'm going to advocate the film to festivals, programmers I've gotten to know over time, to try and help it get some kind of promotional boost before we sell the film. So I've gotten to know a lot of programmers over the years. So sometimes I'm brought in pre-festival um, to call programmers and just make sure they're watching the movie. Um, also to pitch it, but I think the biggest thing there is just to make sure they're watching it. Um, you know, if you add up the number of you know, entries into these festivals, and you look at the number of people that have been hired to watch them, it's almost impossible, right, that this few number of people are watching this number of movies over a three-month period. 
So there are films, some films are not getting watched or they're just being watched by an intern or an underling. So I'm there to try to make sure that someone um, of significance is watching the movie and given it a chance. Um, in addition to maybe consulting my filmmakers on what festivals to apply to. Is it right for Sundance? Is it a South by Southwest kind of movie? Um, if not, is it more of a heartland, Seattle? There's all kinds of great festivals, but you know, there are different festivals that have different strategies. So I'm here for that, you know, kind of in addition to everything else. Have you ever had filmmakers say, skip the festivals? I, 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 I oh, know yeah. it won't get into this one and I won't get into that one and these other ones I don't care as much about. Absolutely. Um, and, it, you know, from an advisory point of view, I've even said that too to some people that um, uh, your, your film isn't right. It's commercial. Um, it's, um, you know, if you have a family movie, right? Um, Sundance doesn't take a lot of family films. I mean, they have, they, I mean, they might have a section where they take like one or two really, you know, big family films, but they're not going to take small kind of dog or pony movies, right? Those kind of movies um, aren't right for festivals. Um, Horror films, you know, in general, um, of a certain level, don't. You know, there's a horror audience out there that doesn't really require kind of the lift of a film festival to to get it um, out there. And to a certain degree, festivals really only add so much value these days to a film festival. And the real value, at least pre-COVID, for me, for of Sundance and South by and and Tribeca, um, those are festivals that are attended by buyers and so they're in a room they're feeling the audience watch the movie um it's the only place where distributors make mistakes right where they where they like oh they they get a feeling like okay well, let's go bid on the movie off of this feeling they have in the theater um they're never gonna have that feeling when they're watching the film on their cell phone while they're driving or or however they're they're watching your movie right um it's um, so those festivals in particular have that in addition to some branding value, they also have the value of having the people there watching the movie. There's another several thousand film festivals in North America that buyers just don't go to. Really great festivals. Um, and maybe one or two show up because they're on a panel or something, but they're not flocking there to watch the content to see if there's films to buy. They know that at some point those films will eventually get to them and they'll be able to watch it in their office. It's not worth flying all over the country to see these to these festivals. Um, and the so the value to a distribute the value there is maybe if we have a film that's not right for Sundance, didn't get Tribeca, et cetera, but it goes to Seattle. Then when we're going to the distributor saying, hey, here's this great movie, and it just premiered in Seattle check it out and you pitch the movie and then they watch it and take you know now the fact that it's in Seattle goes in one ear and out the other right it's not a heavy consideration for them like oh wow it played Seattle not that we want to flog Seattle to get all kinds of hate mail about Seattle but Seattle's a great festival but the buyers just aren't there and so the distributors are going to watch it on Vimeo at that point or Blu-ray um, so um, there's just there's just marginal value for festivals at that point, but there's lots of other good reasons to go to festivals other than will it get distribution because of them. Um, you know, it's the best experience uh, you have with a film usually. Uh, experience it with an audience. It's better than theatrical per se, where it's which I you know is kind of cold. There's not like a ready willing audience. Uh, you go to the Limley and you there's five seats filled and it just doesn't have the same 
impact as a as a festival screening where people are there to you know to purposefully enjoy a film like they really want to enjoy it um and um other reasons are uh to get feedback from fellow filmmakers to see other people's films to meet other people you might work with in the future to maybe meet someone who wants to invest in your next movie there's all sorts of good things that come out of festivals but really for setting up distribution there's it's really minimal what what they what they provide for that um, um, so when I'm talking to filmmakers I have to kind of deal with their expectations of what they want to do and give advice on like how to proceed strategically to get the film the best possible position and usually I'm going to say if it's not a Sundance or a South by or a Tribeca kind of film we can go for festivals and do that but at any time if you get tired of that and you're like, we haven't gotten to the festival. Can we go ride to Byers? We can because it's only providing a little bit of color to the fact that you've got a good film already, in my view. Um, so and so, when filmmakers do come to me and say, "Let's just go straight to Byers," no problem, um, really, no problem at all. Um, it's to a certain degree too. Um, some. Um, I've had, you know, there are places like there's some streamer, a couple of streamers um, that I've approached with films before. And they, once a film's in a festival, they've already kind of looked at it. Not, not that they've seen the film, but they've kind of digested what it is and made an assessment um, purely off of an image and a synopsis. We want to check that out or we don't. Um, and there's a lot they don't. So I've had a little bit more success with some films, especially documentaries. Um, if I'm going to them without anything and saying, hey, this has not been exposed anywhere in the world, no festival or anything, I'm giving you and a few other people a look at it first. Sometimes that's a better message um, to a distributor than, hey, we played Seattle. Because um, sometimes I'll get, yeah, we looked, we saw it in the listings, not for us. You know, you'll get sometimes and then I've got to beg and plead them to watch it and give it another chance so um, yeah it's uh, it, you know at the same time though lots of filmmakers just want to play festivals right they just that's just a thing and very understandably there's a lot of great stuff about it so you know the I'm here to advise on strategy and then once we've decided with the filmmaker what to do then I'll implement it whatever kind of whatever they want to do so they want to play festivals. Do they also want to attend or some are okay getting into these bigger festivals and not going? Yeah, you get different. Most I find want to attend. I mean, we're talking pre-COVID again, but when you could. But um, um, most I find want to attend. Occasionally I'll find someone who doesn't really care about going. Um, but overwhelmingly 90% I think want to go and have the experience of, of the crowd and and all the things that you get out of the film festival. Yeah. Sure. Q&A. Yeah, those Q are great. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Right. Feeling the energy. Yeah. What red flag should a filmmaker look for if they are considering hiring a producer rep? Well, um, so I would say look at all their go to IMDb. Look at the, their history of all the films that they've sold. Um, call those filmmakers. Um, if you know, dig in, find a website address. You know, if, if it's not readily available, get to those people and and call them, and see what kind of experience they had. 
Um, I imagine that all producer reps and distributors and sales agents all have people that don't like them. But you, hopefully you find someone that's got more people that like them that don't like them. Um, I think... Um, I think, you know, when I when I pitch myself, for, and I'm never really cognizant of like who else they're looking at. Like I don't have a sense of my competition that way. It's never like me against the same three guys for a film. I, it just doesn't, it's, it's fairly, um, I find that, I think most films that I talk to about repping their films um, aren't really considering many other options. Um, I, I, that's the sense I get. I don't really ask them about it or, or really care. Um, but, um, I, I can say this. So I know when I decided to get into the business, I was working for an international sales agent at the time and looking around the landscape, I felt like there was a need for someone to do what I do a little bit more deeply than I felt like other producer reps were doing it. Like I kind of alluded to before, there's a lot of just kind of, okay, toss it to the wall if none of these 10 distributors want it, moving on, you know, um, which leaves everybody empty. And, and so I really try to do, I, I try to do the job of making sure I understand the full distribution landscape, who are the best possible options for this film. If none of them want, want it, what are the possible second tier options for them to do? I also have my own tricks of the trade if something were to fall to self-distribution per se, What's the what are the best practices there? Who's the best aggregator to use? You know those situations. So I'm I'm trying to I'm trying to provide a full kind of consulting service around what I do as opposed to that. So I I think that um, when you're looking for a producer rep, it's kind of it's kind of like references. You know, do you like the films they've sold in the past? Does your film feel like a fit? Um, you know, have they made deals? You know, can you can they point to films that have had had deals with Netflix and Hulu and Showtime and HBO and and IFC, etc. Um, but yeah, it's funny. I should, I should probably take another look at the at the landscape of producer reps out there besides myself and see what options people have to to um, maybe give a fuller answer on that, but. Yeah, to a certain degree, I think that's probably the, the way to go about it. Why is your advice to filmmakers to not make movies for money? Well, so it depends on the level of investment of a film and what, you know, what my advice changes film to film, for sure, and filmmaker to filmmaker, depending on their goals and what they're doing. So if you want to make, if your passion is to make a film about growing mushrooms, and you want to spend an hour and a half just watching the mushrooms grow. You know, you shouldn't tell an investor you need $150,000 to shoot that movie and it'll get on Netflix for sure, right? But if you can go out and do it for your own pocket change and you can do it on your iPhone and then you can put it in an art museum, okay, great. That's your passion that you, and you had to found an interesting way to film those mushrooms, right? Um, the point there is, I guess, that um, if you make something low budget and because it's your and it's your passion and everybody knows the high risk of whatever you're spending, um, then great. Uh, 
everybody's going in eyes wide open. Um, but ultimately, most films just monetarily fail, overwhelmingly fail. Um, and that's not because of distributors being crooked, although there's a little of that in places. It's not because they spend too much money advertising or put it in their pockets or have exorbitant deals. It's because there's overwhelming amount of content out there for consumers to consume and just no way to monetize every independent film that everybody makes in, in, in a way that makes sense vis-a-vis -vis the budget. Um, I, I'm in the position of seeing the, the results for, you know, intimately of over a thousand films in 25 years and overwhelmingly the most films fail. That's just, that's just the reality of the marketplace. If you look at, not to name names, but if you look at a decent art house distributor, one of the ones that distributes 20 to 25 films a year and has a prominent brand um, and well thought of and everybody wants to be with, if you look at their box office for each of the films that year, there are a couple that get over a million dollars and there's about 20 that make 200 to a few thousand dollars. And they've spent money to try to make those films into something and it just didn't work, right? So um, that's why everyone should approach filmmaking as the business with a huge amount of caution because it's, it's, it's better to put your film in a mutual, your money in a mutual not, sorry, your money in a mutual fund, right? It's not, a, and a film is not a great investment. Um, um, and so, you know, if you are making a film for in the two to $3 million range, there are ways to go about it without just taking someone's cash and blowing it that to amortize the risk um, or to minimize the risk. Um, you can shoot in an estate with a tax credit, like to take care of 25 or 30% of the budget. So narrowing how much the person has to spend in cash on the film. There's getting uh, involved with a international sales agent and getting cast that they can sell the film on to, to pre-sell the film so that you can take those contracts and, ca and get cash for those from a bank in order to squeeze down the, the amount of equity you have to spend. So there are ways to minimize it so that you've, let's say you've made a $2 million film and you've now all you need in equity is 25% of the budget. You know, you're making a $2 million film essentially for uh, half a million dollars. Now, hopefully with the name that you've got and the quality of the film you made, when, you're, when it's done, you'll be able to present to the territories you didn't pre-sell and get numbers that are bigger than that half a million, but you're still risking that half a million dollars. Um, if it turns out badly, it's gone. And there's just only so many films a year that distributors who can pay a million dollars plus for a film are gonna buy. Um, like I said, there's like 10,000 films made a year. And you know, big, you know, the biggest distributors that actually take on indie films only want a couple of them. Um, you know, companies, you know, a little, a little lower down want 20 to 25. The ones who are doing, you know, real theatrical films here. Um, there's some that want 10 to 20. Um, and then there are, there's a, you know, a good number of, I would call kind of mostly all rights 
dis, uh, digital distributors who sometimes do theatrical as well, but most of them aren't paying a lot of money for films. So, you know, when, when you're looking at the film as a business, you have to realize it's hardly even a business. It's practically throwing money away. Um, and the thing that studios and, and bigger distributors know is that not they know all films are not going to work. So they're but they're they're playing the long game of making multiple films over the course of a year, and that they know that the winners will pay for the losers over time. As an independent filmmaker, one making one movie, you're taking one shot, and um, that makes it even a higher risk. Well, going back to the argument of you know don't try to make money from the film. It seems like it's an interesting thing in that do you make it for the market and try to try to cash in on it or do you make it based on something you're really passionate about but then is it going to be marketable? Yeah. That's tough. I think you have, you have to look to the individual and their soul and what they're about at the end of the day, right? And there are some people that have, it's, they have it all. They have the, the talent they have something they're very passionate about that that is, let's say, it's a dramatic story that isn't a thriller or horror or family film. It's not obviously commercial, but they've just really they've written it well. People are responding to it on the page. Actors are responding to it on the page. Financiers are responding to it on the page, and then it all comes together and it becomes this great thing that does well. It sells to Netflix or sells to a big company. Um, that can happen, but those are very rare occurrences. Um, so I, I think all filmmakers have to kind of juggle that stuff. Some people also inherently have commercial sensibilities and they grew up loving Spielberg and, and, uh, and Ron Howard and, people, and who, people who had commercial sensibilities. And they, tell, they just kind of instinctively tell commercial stories. Um, There's some people that don't. They go, you know, they're more uh, Fellini fans or Truffaut or someone like, and, and that's what the way they see the world, but they, you know, and probably having those influences is gonna make the way they tell stories a little different. Um, and so that has to be kind of brought into the mix of like, how does this, how does this talent converge with what's commercial? I don't think it's ever really good, you know, to make a movie because, well, it's the right genre and we've got the right name, but the talent, the director's okay, and the screenplay's okay, right? That's, you know, okay, maybe they'll trade dollars because they could pre-sell the movie and get some money based on the name, and it gets an okay deal, but it's probably just trading dollars at the end of the day. It's probably not gonna, the film's probably not gonna lift beyond that. I think there, you have to take into consideration kind of everything. Um, in this business when you're making a film. Again, depending on the budget. Again, if you're going out and spending $10,000 on your little movie, go crazy, right? Like you're, you're only risking your own $10,000. Um, and there are there are lots of people doing that. And that's that's fine, right? As long as you understand that like you're probably not getting a $100,000 HBO deal out of that. So cursed are the ones that want to do a movie on shiitake mushrooms with organic soil and 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 but you never only, know if it's just the greatest only, mushroom yeah only cursed <laughs> if they think that they're gonna get a netflix deal out of it right okay if it's if it's okay that they make it and show it in an art museum perfectly legitimate right there's an audience there 
there are people that like avant-garde, interesting, experimental things, but you don't see that stuff on the major streamers. You don't see, you know, even you know, IFC, Magnolia, A24, they're not picking up, you know, avant-garde stuff or just even or weird stuff. I mean, if you look at most of their slates, it's fairly commercial stuff, even though it's you know, high, you know, highbrow and has interesting filmmakers. They, a lot of them, you know, you look at genre, you know, a lot, of, a lot of those films are thrillers and horror films. They're just elevated in some way, right? A good portion of them. Um, none of those guys are doing like, you know, 25 dramas a year. Um, the, the market wouldn't bear it for them. It wouldn't work. Yeah, I don't know why this keeps coming into my, my mind right now, but Searching for Sugar Man which was such an excellent film. I know some people were critical of it. I loved it. But it was able to sort of transcend. I mean, it it, it won an Academy Award, correct? Or, yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah. And and so here here's a story that seems kind of unlikely and it was just so beautifully told and the the main character yeah. was so fascinating. And there are anomalies, right? So this is like but you just don't build a business, which is each film is almost a business at a certain budget level. Right, um, you can't you can't build a business based on an anomaly, right? You have to you you should you should look at genre, you should look at cast, you should look at those things depending on what your budget level is. Um, There's certain budget levels you can't afford cast, right? You can't afford names that will work on your film, um, you know, unless your uncle is Tom Cruise, you know, like then then you know you're you're most likely not casting someone that, that helps prop up the movie. So um, I think uh, you have to factor in cast and genre and your budget. Um, you know, in addition, something I don't think enough people do is vet their screenplay you know, with get 100 people to read it, you know? get script services to read it, get feedback. Um, there's so many so many films that I have to turn down that I think, wow, it's really well shot and and the acting's competent, but there's just no story here, or there's just not enough of a story, or they didn't get to the story fast enough. You know, there's certain kind of rules of screenwriting you, you know you kind of have to follow in order to make a you know a commercial movie. This is a hard topic for us to bring up, but I'm I'm hoping maybe you can clear up some misconceptions. We often hear that filmmakers aren't making money from distribution deals, but at the same time, we hear that you can make great money working in distribution. Can you can you help us understand here? Well, yes. Um, so, in my opinion, most people aren't making money from distribution because most films just don't work because the public didn't decide to click on your movie. They didn't buy a ticket. Um, there's just a lot more. Um, there's just a lot more content being created by the streamers and by studios that, and and we've got other ways of entertaining ourselves than movies these days, games and TikTok and whatever. That it's, there's just not a lot of as much demand as there's not a lot of demand compared to the supply at the end of the day. And so I find that. Um, and distributors are in the job of taking a certain, out a certain number of films a year, 
They know that some are gonna work. They know by experience not all of them are gonna work. And they're gonna do about the same thing on every film, maybe treating one a little better, a little bit more PA, uh, you know, more advertising dollars behind it in order to make it work. And and they're gonna so they're gonna take each one out, and if one doesn't work, it's gonna then go through the motions of trying to get a TV, you know, if it didn't work in theatrical and or transactional VOD like iTunes and Amazon where people can rent and buy it. If it didn't work there, they're still gonna try to sell it to HBO or Hulu if they can. If it doesn't work there, then they're gonna put it on advertising video demand channels like Tubi or Pluto that pay small royalties per view, right? And that's what most, that's the windowing that most distributors do. And there's not a lot to that, right? It's just placement. It's salesmanship and placement. And they're not gonna spit, like if a film didn't work in the very beginning, they're not gonna keep spending advertising dollars. They're not gonna keep, there's not much for them to do. And I think filmmakers feel like, you know, hey, you're not doing anything for my movie. Well, but should they be doing anything for your movie? If they did more for your movie, they would probably lose more money. If the film didn't work on the outset, if it didn't connect in the first three months of its life, it's it's not gonna make money. And that's and, it, and it's gonna stay with that distributor and they're gonna put it through the platforms properly. But if they were to spend more time and effort trying to monetize it, they would lose. And you wouldn't make any more money is the reality. Um, in addition, I think in general, distributors are pretty bad at communicating that to filmmakers. I constantly am having to preach that on their behalf to my clients and other people in the business because um, I've gone on to, um, there's platforms out there where people vent about distribution, right? And you know, I see who they're, who they're venting about and I know the I know I, you know, and some yes there are some there there are some scumbags out there that no one should ever go near, but there are some people they're venting about on there that I know are running honest businesses, and doing it properly, but they're just not going to be your best friend forever, right? They're not going to be the best friend of the film forever. They're just going to do their job. If it works, great. If it doesn't, it doesn't. I also find some some filmmakers just don't understand their contracts when they get into them. Um, you know, there are some distributors of a certain level that are saying, okay, we're going to put the film out theatrically. We're going to spend this amount of money and here's a big check. And that's a great, that's great. And they're, you know, forget about that for a second, but most deals are with distributors that are not putting up any money and just going to take it out on the various digital platforms and try to sell off Netflix and Hulu later, et cetera. Um, and in those cases, many filmmakers just don't understand that that's what they're getting into. They think I got a distributor. My life is saved. My film is going to do, make a lot of money and they're going to market it without even talking to them about marketing. And sometimes these contracts even literally say, we're not hiring a publicist. We're not marketing the film. We have the option to, but we're not pledging to. And so if you go in thinking your server's going to do one thing and they don't do it, then there's, then you're getting on, you know, some platform and saying, oh, I hate so-and-so, you know? Um, and so that's what I, I, I see a lot of that. That's not to diminish the people that do get screwed over. There are there are companies, there are bad actors out there, but there are um, a lot of distributors that just I think a are doing the job properly. If if even if they are falling a little short on the communication of why 
the films are not working to their clients. So it's kind of a, a, a barring someone being dishonest. If, if a company is honest, but, but then you have filmmaker A over here who feels like I'm not being given attention and my movie's just being shoved to the back, it sounds like there's just, the communication is just really broken. And one is a business person, the other is kind of an artist that's very possessive over their, mm-hmm. their work yeah. and they're not meeting in the middle. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think, and that's not to say I wish that distributors could be a little bit more communicative and a little bit more in, kind of in general, even the ones I like um, could be a little bit more um, um, responsive to phone calls and emails from clients. But um, I think to a certain degree, a lot of these companies are taking a lot of films and they've got to kind of move on to the things that work. And not all filmmakers are are personable, nice people either, right? You get some filmmakers that have screws loose or are have Napoleonic complexes or whatever they have, and um, and 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 are coming after them with phone call after phone call day after day. And as a distributor, like, do I have to deal with that or I don't? I don't have a contractual obligation to call back a jerk, right? I'm going to move on and start working. I'm more just like I do. Any other film, whether he's a jerk or not, I'm going to do the same thing, right? I'm just going to stop talking to him because he's he's just wasting my time, right? Now, most filmmakers aren't like that, but there are that does happen, and I think that because that happens, that also makes distributors, you know, a little bit more reticent to be personable and 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 communicate with their filmmakers in case it turns into that kind of like. Like, why am I in this conversation with this person who I, I put their film out? It's not making me any more money to talk to them about what's happening. Yes, they're my client, but um, what you know, what is there to do at this point? And the reality too is, what's hard about this too is that some of these contracts are seven, ten years long, right? And so filmmakers quite often feel stuck. They're like, they're not doing anything with my movie, and I can't get it back. Well, the problem there is, what do you do when you get it back? You're not going. No other distributor is going to take it after it's been distributed by somebody else. You're not going to be able to get Netflix or Hulu or so so and so to look at it. Most likely, they've already shown it to them, and they've passed. Um, if you get it back, if if they do agree, if they do agree to give it back to you, you're going to have to get it extracted from all these digital platforms that it's on. They can't just turn the hose over to you. And have the financials just start going. You have to pull it off, and then you're gonna have a hard time getting it back on, because some of those some of those platforms are like, we've had this film before, X. Like, like you know, we don't want old films, um, and so it's you know, and so it, it, people end up putting it on Amazon Prime or you know, kind of direct themselves, and it just sits there, and doesn't make any money anyway. So most filmmakers should be. If they can, moving on to the next thing at that point, what's my next project? How can I take whatever happened here, make some good out of it, and hype it towards getting my next thing done? Because once you've got once you've made that distribution deal, whether you're in a good situation or a bad situation, you're that's it. That's your your film is is that's the, gonna be the story of your film, one way or the other. Um, you know, it's kind of an illusion that you can get it back at some point. And, and make something out of it. And that's why, in addition to knowing who the buyers are and being able to read and understand contracts, it's, that's kind of where I come in. I know who communicates well. 
I know who does the job properly and what that job actually is as opposed to what it isn't and can explain that to the filmmakers so they know what they're getting into when we make the deal. So we don't get those calls two years later saying, you know, why aren't they marketing my film? Because they knew well going in because I explained it to them exactly what kind of situation they got. Well, you use the word illusion, which I thought's fitting because maybe they did read the contract, maybe you explained it to them properly, but there's an illusion, mine's gonna be different. I realize yeah. it's gonna be <laughs> locked up for this, but this is different. Yeah. And that's nothing against the filmmaker, it's just we all think our thing is different. 100%. I've, I've produced movies as well with other, not, not myself alone, but with other people. And, um, and I've, I've gotten the spell. I've been in the bubble of like, we made the greatest thing ever. You know, this is going to go to whoever. And um, so I, I do understand that. And I do, ha and I do have clients that despite I uh, explain it to them, do come back to me later and say like, why aren't they doing this? And like, well, if you remember, this is what we talked about. You know, it's not quite like that for this film. Should a filmmaker kind of take the worst case scenario? I know some people don't like to operate like that, but... It can help if you kind of take the worst case scenario stance. You know, you're looking at the contract and thinking, well, I know it says I'll be locked up in this territory or whatever for seven years, but I'm sure it'll be fine. And maybe just have something in their mind. Do I really want that? Is this really for me? Um, I think that, yes. I think that, I think you can make an educated guess on what the worst case will be based on the habits of the company you're in bed with to a certain degree. So, because, you know, most distribution agreements don't have anything in them that says they have to put out the movie either, right? Sometimes we can build in clauses where it says, if you don't get, release it in nine months, we'll get the movie back. But that's pretty easy to fulfill. You can throw it on Amazon and it's released per se, right? So it's hard to get a like a narrow get a distributor to guarantee what will happen. I'm saying that because if you are if you do get a deal with a distributor and you look back on the last couple of years and you see, oh, they've released all these films and these this is how they've released them, there's a little more security that the worst case scenario is that they're gonna release it like that. Right? They said they're gonna put it on all these platforms, they did it for all these other films. So that's most likely the worst case scenario. And the worst case scenario is that they do that and no one bothers to buy the movie. You know, that can happen for, you know, lots of films. Um, you know, it doesn't happen at a certain level if you're getting big theatrical deals. But we're talking about straight to digital, you know, distribution. That's very much a... But I, it's, it's funny because I've had so many films now go to these distributors that handle all rights and they give them the same treatment and some make a couple hundred thousand dollars and some make two thousand dollars and you really can't see any difference between the two except that perhaps the artwork just clicked with the public better the trailer clicked someone said something about it kind of organically online and that took off and created a swirl it's really hard, like there's a lot of things you can tell a filmmaker to try to do to support a film, publicity, get in social media company, um, doing a theatrical. There's nothing that guarantees that any of that will help or work. Um, I almost always do kind of, if someone just have, has a, a, a digital distribution deal, 
say, try to do something to help support it because at least you feel like you did something. Um, but there's no real empirical evidence that like having a publicist for a film makes a dollar more um, or that running $5,000 in social media ads makes $10 more. Um, at least from what I see in terms of looking at films, I've seen many films get no treatment, make lots of money, and some don't. We posted a poll on our YouTube community tab, and the question was, do you trust film distributors? So the poll received about 8,000 or so votes, and 85% of those polled said they do not trust distributors. Um, now, we didn't ask them in what capacity they've dealt with them, where do you think this negative reputation stems from? It all goes to the, the, the failure rate of films. And I think that, um, I think some distributors oversell what will happen to films in order to get them. Um, not all, but some do. Um, I think it, it goes to expectations of just getting a distribution deal and thinking, hey, I'm done. It's going to make make money. I think that's part of it. Um, I think it's frustrating to have um, gatekeepers to the public. You know, there's there there's so many things coming out of a dollar before it gets to you um, as the filmmaker, because you know someone buys the film on iTunes. Um, iTunes is taking thirty percent, right? That seventy percent is going to your distributor. Your distributor is taking 25% and costs. So when, and when they get by costs, then they're paying you at that point, right? So there's, there's a lot of international sales. Your international sales company is taking 20%. They're putting it with a distributor overseas who's going to take their percentage. That distributor is putting it on a digital platform that's going to put it and make money in Germany or wherever. So there's three steps before it gets, gets to you. Um, so, you know, if it were the case that, and it is the case that, you know, people could go and put film, you, you do have the ability to go put the film on digital platforms yourself. So, um, there are labs that have kind of aggregator, um, kind of call themselves aggregators, although I think the word aggregator is kind of a strange word for it, but all they're really doing is facilitating placing the film on Amazon, iTunes, Google Play, etc. Um, and there you're paying them the cost of encoding the film for the platform, but they're not taking a percentage at all. So you're, you know, iTunes is taking 30% and you're getting 70%. Um, the reason why, and now maybe some films should do that because they could just, you know, it's a small film and they can push people to watch on iTunes and then they get what they, they reap what they sow. Um, the reason people go to distributors as opposed to doing it themselves is distributors can get to more platforms than these labs can. Um, there are some platforms that require a pitch. So to get a film on um, in demand, DirecTV, Dish, etc., you need someone to go and pitch the movie to them and then when it comes out on iTunes and Amazon, et cetera, it's going to be, the release date is going to be the same for those platforms. Um, in addition, these distributors have relationships with streaming companies like Netflix and Hulu and HBO. So once they have the film in the transactional VOD world, 
they're then going to go try to make that sell. If you go put your film on iTunes, you can't. There's no, there's no way to get into Netflix at that point. Even I can't go to Netflix. I, I I can go to Netflix Originals Division as a producer rep, but I can't go to them in a distributor position of where it is after it's been on transactional for a while. So, if we lived in a world where all these platforms were open to filmmakers going there, that's what we would do. And I would I would become a marketing expert instead. I would help people with marketing and just say, hey, let's just go put it on these platforms. But there are gatekeepers to those platforms or people have those relationships and that's the reason we have to use them. Um, and then there are some people that um, treat that space honorably and understand, you know, uh, um, are respectful of the fact they got lucky enough to be in such a position to be the gateway for other people's content and treat their filmmakers well and explain everything to them and try to do the best. And then there are some that really just take it and never call you back. And that's, that's for, you know, I think it kind of goes back to communication. I think at the end of the day, there's just, if, if, if distributors did a better job of communicating on the front end, what's going to happen, what the, what, you know, what's likely, what's, you know, realistically the uh, a medium outcome or the best outcome. Um, and in addition, we're a little bit more open as filmmakers came back to them with questions about how it's going and explained what, you know, why they were doing what they were doing. I think if they were better at that in general, that poll number would be a little bit better. Um, although I think the, the, the main reason for it is just most films fail. And, and therefore, who we're going to blame? I'm not going to blame my movie. My movie is perfect, right? Like I, it's my baby. Um, and the person who adopted my baby is not raising it properly, you know? Um, and, uh, but, um, but yeah, I think, um, but that's hard, that's hard for them to do. It's, you know, it's, at the end of the deal, you're dealing with corporations and distributors are not individuals. And so you've got, you know, the director of acquisitions, the director of sales, the director of delivery, the CFO, the accounting department, and they all have their own lanes of what they kind of deal with. And as the filmmaker, you're like, oh, so who do I talk to about the fact that this doesn't look right? Or I want, I don't, you know, Amazon, my poster on Amazon looks a little weird or whatever. And sometimes it's hard to navigate because not all companies have a front person that's just like, you know, kind of the, the go-to for the client to say, okay, you, you got this problem, you know, talk to this person. Um, I think part of it is just like economics. Like they just don't have the bandwidth to have that many employees at the end of the day and take the, you know, they, they do the math of like, we need to take this number of films. We can make this amount of money. And so we've got to, you know, stretch our employees to do this number of jobs and they're just not going to get royal treatment like they want. And then there's also the, the sort of thought of that, you know, filmmakers are artists and their work is kind of never done. So they're probably tweaking the poster art, maybe the log line, different things. And then they're making all these changes and submitting it. And then you're dealing with business people who don't have the time maybe to, to handhold all these subsequent changes. You know, I, I mean, I'm sure that probably happens a little bit and then they feel like they're being ignored. And maybe in some cases they are being ignored and others, it's just their demands are so high. Yeah, um, 
Yeah, I don't know if I, I, I don't see a lot of people still tinkering after the fact. It's usually, the t it's usually the case that they have to, at some point they have to, you know, okay, I'm done and let it, and let it go creatively at least in terms of log line or trailer or, or things like that. I don't see a lot of people, where I see it breaking down is much more in terms of like, well, what's happening? You're like, are you trying to sell Netflix? Like I haven't heard um, anything. And, and most distributors just don't care about communicating that. The, the, they don't really, they feel like, you know, we're doing our job, we're, we're gonna pay you what you're due, but we don't need to explain to you what we're saying to Netflix or when we're gonna talk to Netflix or, or any of that. Um, I just feel like distributors probably don't feel like they have the time in a day to talk to all their filmmakers about all the intricacies of everything they do is my best guess. Best guess from being on the outside looking in a lot, but never really being in at the same time. What type of accounting practices should a filmmaker expect when working with a distributor? So overwhelmingly, most distributors offer quarterly accountings. Um, and that's, that's pretty standard to at least get two or three years of quarterly and then, um, and then turns to biannual after that or annual sometimes. Um, and that's when your most of your revenue is gonna, that's when it really counts the most. Um, the frustrating thing with accounting is that distributors are on accounting terms as well with the platforms. So a lot of times people get their first quarter statement and they're ready to, you know, okay, let's see how we did. And it's not, there's not much there. And that's partly because when I go and buy a film on Amazon, Amazon keeps that money for 90 days before it hits the bank account of your distributor. And so if it's March and I paid for uh, in March, um, it's not gonna hit um, uh, the distributor until June. And that's the second quarter. So even though someone paid for something in the first quarter, the distributor didn't get it until the second quarter. And so that's when they're gonna account for it, for usually anywhere from 30 to 90 days after the quarter. So it takes a long time for stuff to come in. And that's frustrating. I wish it was more, I wish it was, unfortunately, that's what makes it hard to, to do anything in social media to try to help the cause because you can, if you buy ads and stuff for lots of products out there, you can kind of see what it does for you, right? And if you spend, you know, $10,000 on Facebook ads, you can see what the return is on whatever you're selling pretty quickly because you're the one selling it. But in film, you, you, know, you do the advertisement and you're waiting uh, six months <laughs> to find out whether Amazon, anybody bought the film on Amazon and then you're past really the period. So that makes the whole business so hard because you just don't, the companies that dominate the space in terms of where people buy movies um, can, can dictate the terms of how they account, even to the distributors. So you're saying that a filmmaker reasonably, most contracts would say every quarter you're getting a statement for two years and then after that it's biannually and then annually? Yeah. Okay, so then if they have nine years, then toward the latter end of it, they're going to be getting yearly statements. Correct. Mm. 
And some, it depends on the distributor because some distributors are more amenable to changing their basic terms than others. So it kind of depends, but um, some distributors will say, well, eventually if we, if we don't collect anything, we're not gonna account. So there's zero coming in. There's no reason to send you a piece of paper that says zero came in. Um, sometimes we try to add language that says you're going to count to this regardless because we want you to be accountable per se. Um, so it, it, yeah, it can depend on the distributor. How much does a film's budget impact what it'll sell for? Let's say someone makes a film for half a million. Is a distributor likely to make an offer of half a million? No. Um, in fact, they don't care what the budget is. They may care from the point of view of interest, like, oh, how, you know, if, if they're um, know anything about production and they think, oh, wow, you really, this literally looks great, what'd you spend from that perspective? But distributors in general, they want to, all they care about is what it's worth on the market. And they're going to look at your film and compare it to other films in their catalog or in their imagination or wherever they, however they make their subjective evaluation of your film and decide, okay, we think once it goes out into the world, it'll make, um, a mil we think it'll make a million dollars. Then they might be advancing and they, they really have to think it, it's going to make a million dollars in order to advance half a million dollars. Um, because there's still going to be costs for them to, especially if there's, if there's, if they're, if they're buying something for half a million dollars, uh, they're probably, you know, spending a couple million dollars to monetize that thing. They can't just, you buy something for half a million dollars, you can't just put it on the, um, on transactional VOD and hope to sell it later. Um, films don't make that much money when, when you do that. Um, so it's, it's all about what, what do, how much revenue do we feel like this can make for us? Or how many viewers do we feel like, or how many subscribers are we gonna gain because of this? This title is the way you know Netflix and Hulu and people like that look at it. Because um, at the end of the day, um, I've seen half a million dollars films that look like they were made for two dollars, and I've seen half a million dollars films that look like they were made for seven million dollars. And so that goes to the talent of the production company and the filmmaker and the ability to you know get value from what they spent. Why do we hear that it's bad for filmmakers to be transparent about their budget? So with regard to being transparent to a distributor, um, I think that, you know, if it's, because it could go, you, you, they could go badly two different ways. If I tell a, a distributor I made it for half a million dollars, their opinion would be like, wow, that was ridiculous. Like, why did you spend so much money? Um, and that make them make them afraid of making an offer because if you're expecting to make that much money back, they may not feel like you, even though, even though they're maybe the best option for you, they may feel conservatively that they're not going to make that much money for you. Um, you know, on the flip side, um, if they're if they're wowed by it, it doesn't. I don't think it really makes much difference for them, unless they're the kind of company that um, is in the business of making films themselves and are looking at you as a potential filmmaker to invest in in the future. And there are very few distributors that actually, most distributors um, don't do that. Most distributors are just distributors. And so they don't really, you know, the budget just doesn't really matter 
to them, but it might matter to some some distributors that um, that um, actually make movies. Well, it's interesting because it seems like with Hollywood, we know their budget and it's, it's out there in the trades, whereas with independent filmmakers, we're almost supposed to hide ours like in a shameful way. Yeah. Um, I, I usually just take the... I take the position of not being hiding it for shame. I just like, why does it make any difference? Right? Like, um, unless you made it for $10,000 and it looks like half a million and you want to brag about it and make that kind of part of your your pitch that look how great we are, we could make something short. But not. I don't find most Hollywood cares about that. Or, and I think that story's been played. Right? We had Robert Rodriguez and a couple of others that have like, wow, this film was made for nothing. Um, and now pe- tons of people make films for nothing. Every day someone made a film for almost nothing. So it's no longer really a badge of honor. Um, it's just another fact. Um, and not a very sexy one, one way or the other, I don't think. So I tend to tell people, let's just not, they're not going to ask us, so let's not put it out there. Is the way I, the way I see it. I think it's irrelevant. Like, look at the quality of the film. If you want it, pay the right price for it. But why is it different for Hollywood? Why Why are we okay knowing that you know this many million was spent on this film? Well, there again, I'm not depending on the Hollywood film because there's different. There's studio level, and then there's things that are kind of made with international sales agents. They pop up to studio level, and so there's different kinds of studio films. Um, I'm not sure we're getting the accurate budget. From, from these people, even though they're public, um, sometimes. So, um, I think there's also there's been a number of times when you know the number got out that a production spent, and it was so much that it had a negative impact on people viewing the film. Um, probably would have failed anyway, but there's a few out there that spent 200 million, and be, you know people are like, wow, that that they shouldn't have done that, <laughs> right? So, um, Ishtar. Yeah, Ishtar, Johnny Depp, Native American film, played Tonto. Oh, uh, Lone Ranger. You know, there there are a few examples out there of how it negatively impacted the the publicity. So, um, I think some of the some of the numbers you see about Hollywood um, production stuff out there is guessing, really guesswork and some insight, getting some inside information, but they're not necessarily publishing every budget for everybody to see. I don't think that's that's really happening. Can you give us the ranges of how much movies make on various platforms? Well, I can t- tell you from kind of a true indie perspective, right? Because um, what I work on are mostly true indie films not made in Hollywood, not made with international sales agents, not made with Kevin Bacon in it. You know, th- those are the films I mostly work on. Um, and I see um, the range of revenue coming off of transactional VOD, um, which is rental and buying on iTunes and Amazon and the various cable TV platforms, Um, straight to digital, no theatrical. The range is kind of zero, you know, almost zero to 150,000, about in that range, with the median being much closer to zero and the outliers at the 150 range. So it's not like the average is 75. 
the average is uh, the median. The median is more like um, twenty thousand, I'd say thirty thousand for most most films. And sorry to interrupt. This is for the life of the term of the contract. Correct. Okay. And most of that revenue coming in within the first two years and then just dropping. Um, the next window they go to then, of course, is SVOD or TV sales, and the range there is not making that deal. So there's zero coming in off of that window to a couple hundred thousand dollars. With most films not getting that deal, that's probably the, the most likely case, to some films getting 40 to 20 to 60 in that range. And then AVOD is a growing, uh, sorry, advertising video on demand, which is Tubi and Pluto, where they're paying royalty. People are watching um, because uh, and w- watching advertisement rather than subscribing or paying for it. Um, those platforms are paying ten to fifteen cents per view, and the revenues on there are um, again kind of zero to. 150,000 in that range as well. And growing because it's a, it's a growing um, part of the business because a lot of people don't want to pay. There's a lot of people who don't have money to subscribe to 10 platforms, um, let alone one, and don't want to rent movies, but watch a lot of stuff in that, in that, um, in that ecosystem now. So it's a growing, growing place for films to make money. And you can't skip those ads, correct? They're not skipping. That's right. That's right. And they come up in weird, awful places right. as well. It's not the best viewing experience. And you said 15 cents per, is it per view? Uh, it's per view What if they if they watch a decent amount of the film. I think it's if they watch most of the movie, then the royalty paid out is can be 15 cents per view, um, which is a lot better than what Amazon Prime went down to, which is one cent per view. Um, so that's been a, but we don't know where that's going to go because there are more, there are many more AVOD platforms out there. Lots of streamers are creating their own AVOD platforms, advertising video on demand platforms. Um, and, um, and uh, you know, it just depends. Tubi was bought by Fox. Um, and the way these things go, you just never know what they're going to do with the platform. Do they keep it being a place where distributors can put all their stuff? Or do they eventually turn into something else? Like Netflix at one point was the place where you watched all the movies you ever could, right? Like it had every movie. Now you go to watch Netflix content on Netflix, um, mostly. So, so we'll see. And is that per per view per like IP address? If, if the same user is watching things over and over again, it can still generate money. For the yeah, movie? I'm not sure about that. I, I'm, I imagine that the system probably has safeguards against people creating algorithms so that they just can just like play a film over and over again and make it money, right? I'm sure that they have safeguards against that, but uh, I don't know for sure. When you're reviewing a movie that a potential client has sent you, are you watching the whole movie? Yeah, if I, uh, unless I, it isn't very good. <laughs> yeah. So you have a limit. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Um, yeah, if I if I enjoy it, I I watch it um, all the way through, and um, and then if I if I'm hired, I usually watch it again before I start talking about it. Um, 
because usually there's a few weeks between that moment and when I actually start doing it. So I'm usually watching my films twice. Um, and, um, but yeah, I think that's, you know, there are a lot of films though where you just kind of like, I can't sell it, you know, like why, 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 you know, you know, within 10 minutes, there are lots of out of focus stuff or the acting's really bad or there's a lot of bad movies um, out there that no one ever sees that, uh, that I, I get to watch a little bit of. Well, that was my next question. Yeah, what would make you turn it off after? I, we have five minutes, but okay, let's say 10 minutes. Or you give it, do you have a rule? Like I'll give it a certain amount of time and then. Yeah, it's, it's more instinctive. It's more, um, it's, um, I, I, don't, I don't think anybody out, out of the circle of friends of the person who made the movie would doubt why I got out. Like it's that, you know, there's a lot of, um, well, I should say though, there's also stuff I just don't think there's a home for. And if it's like, um, you know, the hardest category is, is drama without names. Um, and if you found an interesting way to tell the story, then, then and it works and we think there's a home for it, then great. But um, that I find is probably the hardest to pull off. And if, if you haven't like grabbed me in the first 10 minutes, you're probably not a grab, you know, distributor who has less patience than me. Um, and so I probably can't help you, you know, but I think I, I mean, I, I think I probably, that's for some films, but there are some films I watch all the way through and then make that same decision that like, well, I got there, but it was torturous, right? Like, or, or in some way I just couldn't, I just don't feel like I could help them. And what do you tell filmmakers that fall into that category? The truth. Yeah, I have to, you know, I, um, without being mean about it, you know, with just saying, hey, I uh, thank you for sharing the movie. Um, it's, not, it's not right for me. Um, I just don't feel like I could sell it. And maybe there's someone out there for you and here, maybe give them some other people um, that, you know, there's a, there's a website out there with a bunch of producer reps on it. And I usually say, hey, you know, check out that and maybe there's another way for you. Or in some... Some people are also very nice, also especially if they're very nice people and they made a bad movie, that's really hard. And so I'll even get on the phone with them and talk to them about self-distribution and what they maybe could do you know, themselves that might be the best option because I don't think that there's a distributor would take it on. So I'll have that conversation with people um, once in a while. Are there individuals who will fight you on it and say you didn't give it a chance or they'll kind of like negate your issues that you have with it yeah but not often yeah there have been get all types of people for sure i've had some movies i've watched you know a couple movies because i've watched thousands of movies um i had a couple movies where i watched the film and i really wondered about the sanity of the person who made the movie not in a good way like a racer head <laughs> or something like that but in a really disturbing like what is this weird thing that someone sent me and I don't want to talk to them at all. That's happened a couple of times, but that's pretty, you know. And I've had a couple, you know, I've had a few people who are like, um, who make the pitch that like, you know, this is better than you think. I'm like, well, then I'm sure you'll find a home. Is it hard for you to tell people no? No. No, I am. It's part of the job, I think. I think it's to be honest. And um, my mission in general is to help filmmakers. Um, get the best possible distribution. And if I extend that to everyone, even to not my clients, 
Um, and the best message for them is you should distribute this yourself because I don't think a distributor will take it on. I think I've got an obligation to share that message. And it's much, e it's actually easier than, than saying, oh, it's really good, but I, I don't know how to make stuff up. I don't know, I wouldn't know how to, how to, how to fake that. <laughs> well, in some ways you might be helping them because then if they're getting the same notes, then if they make another project, they'll try to correct Right. Something. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. Would you rather a filmmaker send you their trailer or the entire film? Um, the whole film. I like to see the whole thing. Um, um, usually, almost, I, I don't know if I've ever turned a film down off of a trailer. I don't think I have. And quite often people will send me a trailer when they, when they reach out to me. Um, and then I'll say, hey, looks good. Can I see the whole movie? But I almost like to see the whole thing before I talk to someone as well. So I get a feeling for what they have. Sometimes people want to talk ahead of time and just feel it's a bit of a waste of time because you know, I don't know if I know if I can help you yet. I don't know what to tell you yet. And then it becomes just a free tutorial, you know, like about the business. Whatever. I don't mind that, but I prefer to be afterward. Let's do it in one shot rather than several. So. Do you have a preferred method for, for watching something or do you have it just playing on another screen? Um, I throw up, I have, uh, I, most people send Vimeo links and I usually throw them up on my big screen TV to watch them. Um, I have a little quirk in that I like to, um, when I go to buyers with films, um, if we're not pushing them to a theater, it's, it's South by Southwest or, um, um, if we're just sharing it with them directly, there are some distributors I like to, uh, to send a Blu-ray as opposed to a Vimeo link. Um, a, not all of them will do it. Um, some would prefer the Vimeo link, but there are some that are open to getting my Blu-ray. And then I prefer that a little bit because I'm forcing them to watch it on something bigger than, than, um, than their phone. Because I know some of them do. I haven't seen it personally that someone watched it on their phone, but given that you can, I imagine that, like, you know, if you're an acquisitions executive and you've got five films to watch that day and you're at lunch, you might pop one on your phone um, just to get just to get through it. Um, and then, you know, it's not that's not the most illegitimate thing to do, given that if you're a straight to digital distributor, there's lots of people watching these things on small screens. Um, so they may feel like they can, but I just feel like in general, if I'm trying to like get someone to take on a movie. I'm, I'm usually trying to encourage them to watch it on something bigger um, just so they have a better experience than, than something like an iPad, you know? You mentioned that you occasionally will watch a, a string of bad movies here and there. How many movies do you feel like you have to go through to get to one that really piques your interest? It's probably, well, first of all, I, I, this, a number of clients come to me from referrals. Um, either from agencies because they think, hey, it's too small for, for us and they recommend me. And they usually don't recommend me unless it's someone, they, they think there's a possibility of me taking it on. Um, and I get referrals from, from just kind of being out there in the world for a long time. Um, and so the referral, the, 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 um, the rate of which I take films on for referrals is quite high um, because those have been curated to a certain degree. 
Um, and there's, but from the, the cold ones, the ones that come in cold to me, it, I probably have to watch 10 to find one that I feel like I can work on. Um, it's about that ratio. How do you handle it when a producer comes to you and they expect to make, let's say, a million dollars off a film with a half a million dollar budget? So I'm always measuring expectations with potential clients um, because um, I don't really want to work with someone that that expects something that's not going to happen, um, especially if they're going to blame me for it after the fact, right? Like, hey, I you t- I told you I needed to get a million dollars and you didn't get a million dollars. Um, so I'm always very careful to kind of explain how much films in general make in the marketplace, what the percentage chances are for getting a deal with a streamer, what the percentage chances are for getting with one of these all rights distributors and what they do. And then even once you get that deal, because there's a, it's never 100% because it's subjective and we don't know. Um, then, you know, what, here's the range of revenue you could potentially get. And they have to be comfortable with that. Um, because I'm going I'm to tell them what the range of revenue is. And so usually um, there have been cases where it got past me and I didn't, like somehow we didn't communicate about the, the number that they thought they were going to get. And then after the fact, they're like, I thought this would make this. And I'm like, I don't know how you would have thought that. We went through all this, you know, discussion about why that's not possible. Um, and like you said, some people just harbor that thing in the back of mind, well, mine will be different. I don't care what he's saying. And he's still going to do a good job and still make me money. Um, but then, it, you know, but I try not to get in those situations. Is there a litmus test that you have for expectations or you can just try to be as clear as you can? You have your own contracts, you have emails. and Yeah, I mean, usually I upfront am asking them where the, you know, what their goals are and what their but you know what their hopes are. Um, I'd say most people come off with pretty reasonable hopes. It's pretty unusual for someone to be pretty, you know, like, oh, this is for Netflix, and just be no- and just knowing that and being totally wrong. Um, that's unusual. Most people have, I find, a, a certain level of education of the business that they know that it's not, you know, they know what it is to a certain degree. Um, so I'm helped a little bit by that, but I, you know, I definitely that's part of the conversation every single time. Um, I make it a part of the conversation. It's part of what I when I when we're emailing back and forth to start. That's part of my questionnaire, is like what you know, what are your expectations? What do you hope for? Are there distributors also I usually ask? Are there any distributors you don't like? Um, to get out from them the prejudices that they might have from the the the. Um, from the internet and and you know they've heard other distributors being bashed on and what they think so I can dispel those myths to a certain degree as well, um, but yeah those yeah I have to you know I have to feel like the client isn't crazy and I have to feel like they've got hopes but reasonable expectations at the same time. I like that. So you have a, a questionnaire with like 20 questions or something? Not even. Not even 20. Like five okay. questions. Oh, I see. Okay. And a lot of, there's more things come out of that, but yeah, it's, the basic ones are, um, what are your expectations? 
for the film? What are there distributors you don't you're specifically hoping for? Are there any distributors you particularly don't want to be with? Um, what are you what are your festival aspirations? Those are the main ones. Has there ever been a situation where you absolutely love the film, but you've decided not to take it on? No. Um, if I love a film, I want to take it on, period. Even if I think it's going to be hard. Um, as long as, even if I think it's not likely to get distribution, as long as the filmmaker understands that it's not likely to get distribution and I'm going to work as hard as I can to get a distribution. Th that being said, I don't come across any films that I don't think can get a certain level of distribution. Like for me, like I really don't work on films unless it's going to get a deal with an all rights distributor that will do it properly and get it on the various digital platforms. I may love it and hope that it gets better than that in a theatrical or a Netflix deal, you know, something bigger, but not think it's going to, but the odds are against it. Um, but I just need the filmmaker to be clear about that. But if I think a film isn't going to get, it's just, it, I don't know that I've ever seen a film that I loved that I didn't think would get at least that level of distribution. I don't think that's happened. How many films have you helped get onto Netflix? I believe it's five to date. Most of my films that have gotten into Netflix have gone through distributors who then got into Netflix. But in terms of directly, I believe it's five. How about this year? I know we're early in the year. Oh yeah, none this year. None this year, yeah. okay. okay. What's the most recent film you got onto Netflix? Most recent, I'm trying to think if there's something after Tinker that got onto Netflix. There's a film called, a, a kind of lo-fi, sci-fi film called Tinker. I believe that was the last one. Was that the one where she was a personal assistant to an no. insane writer? Oh, okay, because that looked good. No, Chase sure. Crawford was in it. Okay. What are the advantages of a filmmaker getting their movie on Netflix? Um, several things. Um... You know, if first of all, if you're beloved by Netflix and they want to bring you into the fold in terms of making films, um, you know, one of the few companies that can just, you know, say yes very quickly and finance your, your movie. Um, there's a lot of things that come with that, but, you know, they're, they're definitely, you know, they've got a lot of money to spend on production. Um, you know, the bragging rights are pretty huge. Um, I think that's what, you know, film, and it's, it's a way some people consume movies very easily. Everybody doesn't mind paying the subscription fee. No one has to get out their wallet and pay, rent it for $4. Um, so you can tell the world about it and everybody can watch it, you know, fairly easily. Um, so I think that's probably the two main reasons, um, that filmmakers want to be on Netflix. Do they have... Would you say their their uh, recommendations are, are one of the best in terms of you know giving you similar titles, so that your movie will be seen, you know, uh, by other uh, movie go you know like if I'm clicking on one, then it's just it's it's so well sort of the algorithm is so personalized. That yeah, um, yeah. I've seen. I, I you know I think that. Um, I don't think I've ever, so my films have been very indie and, and not Netflix, you know, uh, produced. And so I think they're hard, they're hard to find unless you're 
told about it at the end of the day. Um, and perhaps like with, in the case of Tinker, if you're a, you love indie film and, and sci-fi, um, I'm, not, I'm not sure even with all the content they have now if, you would sh- if that film would show up unless you typed it in and found it that way. So I think it's still hard even to get visibility on Netflix um, with an indie unless you're you know, something of theirs that got a lot more promotion than something they acquired from a distributor. You think that was probably much different a few years back before they started producing their own content? Oh, yeah. Yeah, they used not to produce movies, so they, you know, the, everything was um, other people's content, studio content, Disney movies. Um, um, unless, yeah, unless, um, and, and no Netflix originals, you know, at first. So, yeah, definitely a lot easier. Any disadvantages? Of being on Netflix? Mm-hmm. Um, I depend on your expectations and what you want. I don't, I don't think so. Um, you know, they're, they're usually paying a license fee for the right to do it. So you know what you're getting going in. Um, it's a badge of honor these days to say you're, you've got a film on Netflix. Um, you know, I think some clients, if they're staring at a, at a, um, a minimal offer from Netflix versus someone who wanted to put the film in 10 theaters, you know, they have to choose a path. And depending on what they want out of the film, they might choose the theatrical path because they just want that kind of treatment. Um, but there have been some deals, like um, I currently negotiated a deal with a different streamer where we sold the streamer um, a pay window. They're, they're going to take it, they, they're paying a license fee, and another distributor is going to come in and take all the other rights and assume that contract. So they're going to do the theatrical, do the transactional video, then it's going to go to that streamer that bought the film and then go to um, other other platforms later. Um, And the same distributor was going to pay a lot less um, beforehand when they didn't know about the, the TV deal. So they got their cake, their cake, and they eat it too, so to speak, because they got um, the can't say the name yet, but the the cable deal that they're getting, and they're getting someone to take it out on ten screens theatrically. So that's a win-win in that case. What are the pathways to getting a film on Netflix these days? So there's there's pitching to the originals division to see if it's say um, something they want to take on directly from the filmmaker. Or you can be with a distributor who then, after they take it out on transactional VOD, will then try to pitch it to Netflix. At the same time, they might pitch HBO, Hulu, and other streamers to see if they want to take it usually 90 to 120 days after the start of the transactional video window. So there's really two paths. There's either directly, we can sell it directly or through a distributor as a window later on. And can me as an individual just contact Netflix? Can can I just send them a letter? My experience is not really. um, um, Just from, that's not to prohibit anybody from trying or who knows if you've got the right moxie to get in the door, right? Um, But um, my experience is that filmmakers come to me who have tried have not been able to get someone to watch it 
So it's similar to what you were talking about with the, the need for a producer rep in that some doors are closed. Yeah. Some doors are open. Maybe they shouldn't be, but the ones that are closed, sometimes there's reasons and then you, you do, those might actually be the best ones to try to Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, interesting. So if, if they know someone or if um, the distributor that they've gone with has access, that's usually how it's done yeah. for smaller? Yeah, films? exactly. Okay. And do most distributors promise that or they entertain it but they don't promise it? Um, both. Um, there's some distributors that, that say, um, there's some distributors that that will say, yes, we're going to pitch it to Netflix and HBO, et cetera. Um, that same distributor might also want to film but say, hey, we want it, but we're probably not going to be able to make a deal with HBO or, or Netflix if they're being honest. Um, there are some distributors that um, on the lower side of the spectrum that don't even try because they don't have the relationships. There are smaller distributors that just can't, that take films out to the transactional VOD space and the advertising VOD space, but don't have the relationships to make a deal with Netflix or Hulu, et cetera. Um, and then there are some distributors that kind of pretend they have the relationship and uh, just say that they can pitch them and really can't. How does an indie filmmaker get a Netflix original? Well, the, so there's kind of two ways. One is if you've somehow managed to pitch it to Netflix and they want to make it with you, normally to get that pitch, you've got to be going in with someone who's made a film with them before. Um, they, don't, they and most Hollywood-based distributors and just don't have an open-door policy for anybody to just come in and pitch anything. Most of them, including Netflix, make films with the production companies that are owned by stars or just producers that have been making films for a long time. And so your most likely path is getting involved with one of them, getting somehow getting them to look at your material and having them want to make it and take it in to get financing from Netflix. Um, that's one way. The other way is to pitch it to Netflix, to the original department, have them like what you already made and decide, hey, we'll, we'll make it, we'll turn it into an original. It seems like they're taking a lot of, uh, or they're making a lot of adaptations. Netflix, or at least the, the ones I've been watching are. Yeah, yeah. They make all different kinds of content now. It's uh, from reality to documentaries, and they're, you know, they're, they analyze their, the metrics they have to see what their viewers want dictates, you know, what they make um, and who they make films with. Yeah, you know, I've suggested several films because, you know, they have this uh, email thing that you can just put in. Would you like to, you know, a title we don't have that you'd like to see. And right. Unfortunately, I haven't seen them up there, but, you know, I keep trying. <laughs> <laughs> and I have no personal investment in it. I just right. want to see it on there. But um, do you ever... Uh, recommend a filmmaker go with just a strict Netflix deal rather than theatrical? Um, um, you know, it, it, I'm usually following the lead of the filmmaker on that and trying to see what their goals are and trying to advise them according to what, the, what they want. And I can point out, depending on what's being offered, what I, what I subjectively think is the best math monetarily as in terms of maximizing the value, what's the best bet. Um, 
but if you want a certain kind of exposure, what's the other, you know, what's the other mean? Because there's all levels of theatrical um, from one screen to 10 screens to 100 screens, you know, so it kind of depends on what's being proffered. Um, um, and kind of depends on what I think the filmmaker, you know, wants out of it at the end of the day. When you say exposure, are they also considering future projects down the line, getting their name out there? Maybe is more important than getting someone to see movie A. It's about maybe movie B or C that's coming. Yeah, I find, you know, most filmmakers have competing goals um, that aren't necessarily at odds with each other, but, I, you know, many of them will say, well, it's most important for me to get my money back for my investors, but it's also just as important for me to make my, get my next project off the ground. Um, so I've really declared that they've got two important, most important things, you know, at the end of the day. Um, I'd say, and then it kind of depends because there are some people who have financed their own thing, so they have kind of, they definitely have both things in mind. There's some people I'm dealing with where they have, there's an executive producer that I never meet and but they're in control of the property and they're much more concerned about you know that going on to the next thing than maybe their executive producer is so you know and then i get sometimes the executive producer is part of the discussion so they're having to pay attention to that person and and really the goal is monetization i find that though usually the best situation for exposure matches the best um, um, path for monetization is usually not um, it's pretty rare to have that um, Netflix offer versus semi-wide theatrical, where you think, wow, the money's kind of equal, the exposure's kind of equal. It's usually usually someone, you know, is is putting up something that's a lot better than everybody else. Will filmmakers make more money from Netflix or Tubi? So it depends on the film. Netflix mostly pays license fees for films, straight payments, and here's what we'll you know, pay you for your film. Um, and we'll get it for this length of time, and that's it. Um, Tubi can do that too now. They, they have paid um, upfront monies. Um, but Tubi mostly works with distributors. So like, I don't, I don't pitch Tubi because I just don't find they're really that interested in taking on true independent films directly from filmmakers or from reps. Um, so they're more part of the mix with what the distributors doing at the end of the day. And so most films, most true indies are not getting the Netflix deal, but getting on Tubi. So they're making more money by default from Tubi on their films. Um, if they were to get it, if, if, they, if Netflix did buy the film and then eventually it got on Tubi, um, it could be that it could be that the Netflix deal was so good that they'll never make as much money on Tubi as they did for that deal, or it could be a small license fee and then it takes off on Tubi because it's the right kind of content for Tubi. Um, so, yeah, it just kind of depends. It's not really a very uh, straightforward um, answer to that, really. Where can filmmakers go to make the most money on their films? So, I would say. The in general, most people are going to make the most money through all rights distributors that handle all these various platforms and maximize all the platforms as best they can for the filmmaker. Um, you know, ideally, 
you get a big fat license fee from a streamer. Um, ideally, you get a, a large, or, or ideally you get a, a large minimum guarantee of payment up front from your distributor to handle the rights, which they'll recoup from revenues later. Um, but that doesn't happen for most movies. Um, so, and most movies don't get the direct to streaming deal. So most movies get the all rights distribution, digital and sales deals that are out there. And for me, unless you want to put on the hat of self-distribution for six months to a year, um, and you have the right kind of film for self-distribution, the path of going that way with an all rights distributor is the best way to go. On the other hand, if you've made a documentary about dogs and you have great contacts with organizations that are devoted to dogs, saving dogs, rescue organizations, lovers of dogs on in social media groups and you've cultivated over that time or you're willing to go and cultivate that. And there are, there are people out there that can help you do that. There's a couple of great you know, kind of self-distribution gurus out there that are great at teaching you how to maximize the, that, the value out of that kind of film. Um, and there have been a couple of filmmakers that said, well, you've got the kind of film you should probably do that with rather than going through me and trying to get traditional distribution. Um, but for the most part, if you've made a comedy, drama, thriller, horror, or family film, narrative film or a documentary that doesn't have a neat like that kind of niche that you're and and you don't have a self-distribution hat that you want to put on self-distribution is not the thing to do like it's a overwhelming undertaking and it's and it's got its own risk it's not foolproof you can go out there and do all those things those those self-distribution things and it not work as well but as long as you're happy with that and that's the thing you want to do that that could be the option for some some filmmakers, but overwhelmingly, most people are going to maximize the value of their film by going to an all rights distributor that handles um, all the various rights. What if you have a Christmas film or a women in peril slash women in power, whatever they're called now, film? So, um, so there's lots of there's lots of options for both of those genres. Um, kind of depends on the quality of the film and how it comes out. Um, but the, uh, both of those are in demand internationally. Um, both of those, you have, you have to sell it at the right time of year though because you need a long lead time. Like most Christmas films um, are released in November. Um, to be released in November, you have to have made your deal with someone by you know, August or so. So the best time to sell, I mean, truly the best time to sell a Christmas film is probably May um, because then you're giving your distributor a lot of time to really get everything going and geared up properly for that release in November. Um, but you see Christmas films on Netflix and on all the different streamers and theatrical and, you know, it's definitely, if you pull it off, it's... Uh, it's, it's definitely, um, I think there's a lower, like there's a margin for error there. There isn't with other films. 
Same with, well, I think, women in peril thrillers. There's also a margin of error there. Like you can, film doesn't have to be quite as good in order to make money because it's a, such a desired um, genre. And that's overseas as well as domestic? Yeah. Oh, wow. For both of those. Interesting. What is the self-distribution hat? Just in a, in a nutshell, what, what is that? So um, there are different methodologies that different people teach on, on how to self-distribute a movie. Um, and that usually um, involves trying to identify groups out there that would have a natural inclination to dig your film. Um, and then whether it's going whether it's going after those people on social media directly and trying to market directly to them or it's creating partnerships with organizations that have the same cause and doing free screenings with those people in order to create word of mouth and then um, sell to their you know have them in exchange for doing a free screening they market to their the the larger group uh, of people in their organization um, that's the way I've seen a couple of people, well, a couple of self-distribution gurus um, teaching these days in terms of techniques to try to, um, but it takes a lot of time and effort and it's a different mindset, you know. The, a lot of film, most of my filmmakers are like, okay, I'm done with my job. I want to distribute or distribute the movie um, and don't have the, and don't want to spend six months to, they want to, they want that movie to get out and make money and they want to get onto the pro they want to be creative and make the next project and they don't have that you know salesmanship marketing and you really got to get after it i mean in order to make it work it's not as easy as like finding a group of dog lovers on social media and then just send them a, a, a message you got to really engage with them and get them and connect with them and over time um, make yourself well known to them and and become a part of that culture almost in order to do that kind of self-distribution. There are a couple of anomalies of, of filmmakers that manage to get some money in order to help do their own self-distribution of a non-documentary film where it was a, a comedy or a thriller. But usually it took it when they did it, they managed to pre-sell, they, they had someone that pre-sold rights to a foreign territory and they took that money or they got money from some, a Sundance or some company entity that was just wanting to support them. And they poured that money into a theatrical release. And either they booked the theater themselves and figured out how to do that, or they hired a booker. And then, then perhaps they release, most of them do end up doing a deal with a distributor though at that point to handle all the various digital rights um, rather than going through an aggregator. So most, most successful self-distribution of non-documentaries that I've seen have been pretty well funded to do a theatrical and that helped the overall picture of the film. How many filmmakers do you know who make a living making movies? So I've had several clients who have gone on to you know great careers in making films. Um, I sold Chaka King's first film, Newlyweeds, who went on to do Judas and the Messiah. Um, one of Mike Flanagan's early films, Absentia, who now um, made this, the, the, um, the Shining um, uh, sequel, um, and lots of other great horror films and, uh, and series for Netflix. Um, I, I, I co-produced and helped sell 
several films with Ron Bergman, who's a producer. He, he's now partnered with Ryan Johnson, and they did um, um, Star Wars Eight and um, Looper and several other and Knives Out and several other great films. Um, so I have a handful of clients that have gone on to to have you know great Hollywood careers. Um, I have a few clients as well that still make movies, are still trying to make that one that graduates to the studio level, but still making indie films. Um, some, some still very indie, some kind of in the quasi Hollywood indie world of catching talent and having sales agents, you know, pre-sell their move, movies. There's lots of those movies that kind of out there that don't bubble up, but still kind of make money in strange ways. Um, and, um, and then there's a lot of people that are one and done um, just because it was so such a big effort to get that first one out there. And um, they just never could get quite back to making number two. Um, that's partly because it's just hard to make a film that, that makes money. And, um, and I think it's, it's easier when you're young. I like to bootstrap it and do it for nothing and get all, call in all your favors, but it's hard to call in the favors twice. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's definitely a mix. Sure. And if you have debt from the movie. Yeah. Um, that's difficult. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. So, and most people I know were, I think most films I rep were mostly equity. Most films tend to be, have found an equity investor to make the film as opposed to running up their credit cards. So it's not debt per se and that they have to pay it back. They just have disgruntled. Um, investors maybe, but, um, or not overly happy, but, um, but, um, yeah, I think, um, it's, uh, yeah, it's just, t- it's just not, it's not easy to make a movie and it's, um, um, I'd say, you know, yeah, I don't know what the percentages are, but I'd say probably 70%, 80%, you know, don't go on to make a second film at least. Mm, wow, that's that's high. That's unfortunate, but yeah. yeah. But there's just a lot of stuff that I mean, we've got a lot of movies out there, and mm. it's not that like they don't go on to do great things other ways, right? Like it's you know, um, same. I've definitely had clients like like, well, I made this film, but I'm never doing it again. Like that they that's the way they feel after after making one. Like it's just it was a lot to to get that one off the ground, whatever that felt like to them. So, sure. yeah, it's not always a sad story. It's sometimes just <laughs> what they choose. They just choose a new path. Right. They got it out of their system. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> What's the budget range of the movies you typically work with? Yeah, the range is micro to like almost nothing to mm, several million, three, four million. I'm maybe a couple times I've had seven million dollar films, but pretty rare. How does a half million dollar movie make its money back? So um, there are lots of potential ways to make it back, but um, for a half million dollar movie, you most likely need to get it into a major festival and have someone pay you that and more back up front because if you most half million dollar films don't make their money back. 
So that's, you know, this is half a million dollars, it, you know, implies no cast really, right? Um, that, I mean, when I say no cast, I don't mean there, there are people in the movie, but there's no names in the movie per se that help sell it. And that's, you're going up against a lot of independent films out there that have names that were made at $2 million. And even those movies don't get, sometimes don't get a half million dollars for their US sale. So you're really up against it. It's really, it's tough. But I have had plenty of half million dollar movies that made, you know, 100,000 in the transactional VOD world. The distributor managed to sell to a, um, a cable entity for a couple hundred thousand and then it made more money on AVOD to get to that half million dollar number. Um, and I'm sorry, AVOD? Sorry, oh, advertising video on demand. And that's where the ads play? That's where the ads oh, play, Oh, and you can't Correct. skip, okay, yeah. great, sorry. Um, are there certain films that are domestically made, but they are hits overseas, but they're not here? It's pretty rare these days. Um, the One of the reasons I decided to get into domestic sales as a producer rep, as opposed to doing international sales, was I saw it going down um, 15 years ago. Um, um, you know, there was a day when International sales was major, and talking about we're talking about true indies here, okay? Not there's still a market overseas for films with names and quasi-independent films made by Hollywood production companies. We talking about true indie films. Um, there's barely a market now overseas, and that's partly because at one point we we used to be able to sell almost anything overseas. Twenty five years ago, the this is. You know, there were cable channels around the world and um, video stores around the world that needed content. And U.S. producers were the only ones that could make them at a price. And we were the only ones really doing it in mass. And so we were flooding the world with our content. So fast forward past, you know, um, the writer strike creates the reality television and the cost of production all comes down. And countries around the world start making their own content for their own communities. There's just not there's just no demand anymore, at all for true independent films. Um, there's still a pretty good. I won't say good, but there's still a business for films in the three million dollars and up range that are made. You know, in, not with a with a studio, but independently in Hollywood with a name attached to it, where they can make sales around the world that come up to fifty to seventy percent of a budget. But that doesn't exist for true independence. Even if they get someone and they pay them a day rate, maybe they weren't. They're not an A lister, but they're recognizable. Enough. Yeah, these days you, it's like to me for for sales purposes, it's really A list or nothing. Um. I think when you're when you're if you're gonna if you're casting for name value and it's that level, you should also be making you should also really uh, be getting them because they're really great for the role. Um, much more important than what their name value is, and you're hoping that the combination of them being um, great for the role and a little bit of name value catapults it into another sphere than the everything else out there. Um, 
but yeah, I see a lot of films that cast B-level talent. I should say not level, but you know, value talent um, for that purpose, and it just doesn't didn't make a difference. Right. I'm just thinking of overseas as well. So it sounds like maybe 15, 16, 20 years ago. Yeah, we could do that easily back but then. There was a you know there was a day when you could just tell an international uh, distributor, oh, I've got so and so in it, and and they just believed you, right? And that it, they didn't even know that the person had value um, or not. And that's how you know that's how West World it was at one point, you know. Um, or wild, um, but they're all much more sophisticated now. Um, they all know exactly what they need and what their audiences want and who's worth what. And so it's it's really kind of, you know, again, there's, again, going back to those $3 million level films where, you know, there are some actors that have kind of popped up in value because they were in big studio films and so there's a certain recognizability, a certain name value that's still there, but they're not getting, you know, they're not leading roles in, in big studio movies. They still are trying out for them. Maybe they're trying to be the next Marvel guy or whatever, but they're not getting it, but they still have some value. So for a few years, they'll be castable in that kind of budget range. And usually in thrillers or horror films or, you know, elevated horror, or, you know, something very commercial action as well um but um but it's uh but that list is pretty it's a pretty small list and it changes and it's subjective too i find that like just because one sales company has an affinity for one level one actor with a little bit of name value they might have that affinity because they had a film last year that they sold with him that did well but the sales agent over here doesn't have that experience and doesn't, didn't, hasn't made a film with that guy. So they don't have this, put the same value on him that that other company does. So it's not like a, you know, a where, like you can't rely on IMDb scores um, for value. They really, you know, sometimes they correlate, but most of the time they don't because people pop up and down on that list um, pretty wildly now. With faith-based films, is the only place to sell them is to certain networks? Yeah, I'm not that conversant in faith-based stuff. I've never sold a faith-based film. Um, from what I understand, um, you know, there's a mega church that kind of, um, there's one or two of them that have done, you know, quite a good job in the past of, of, of creating these faith-based films for their, um, their audiences. And, and screening those films for the churches as a way to create a groundswell for selling off the ancillary rights later. Um, and, um, and, and I think that there's, um, there are faith-based production companies that have kind of figured out the formula and the name value that they need and can kind of and, and know how to do that. Um, but if someone came to me with a faith-based film, I'd say, hey, you, you know, um, if it if it also works for a secular audience, I know where to go with it. But if it's purely faith based and very or very overtly faith based, there's better there's there's routes that I don't really know that much about. How does film negotiation work? So usually, if a um, distributor wants a film, um, they'll reach out with terms. 
um, either you know everybody does it a little bit differently. Some people um, will poke at me and say, "Well, what do you want?" Um, some will just send me an email saying, um, "Okay, here's the here's what we would do for the film. Here's the distribution fee." And then either they have a a term sheet or they just type it into an email. Um, um, usually, the next step is I present that to my filmmaker. Um, explain the company to them and what what they're about. Um, introduce them to them so they can hear it from the horse's mouth, so the distributor can tell them exactly what they're going to do with the film and how much they like the film, etc. And then we repeat that process with any other offers um, coming in. And then I usually try to help the client make a decision in terms of where, which way they want to go. Um, and then depending on which way they want to go, there are some distributors that have come at us exactly where they want to be. And I just know from experience, there's no negotiation. Um, they've come at me with the lowest distribution fee they ever offer, uh, the lowest cap on expenses they'll do, the lowest term they'll do. And, um, and then there are some companies I know that they've come at me a little higher than what they'll do. And I know what the wiggle room is ahead of time. Um, and so depending on who the client has chosen, I'll tell them, okay, well, here's where I think we can move the contract uh, on this. If they give me the green light, then I usually call the, the distributor and say, hey, here's, they like you best, but only if uh, you can make these terms. Um, and then if they agree, then we're, we're good and we go to a long form and then there's a long form to negotiate as well. But usually I've seen most of the long forms for all the companies that I've dealt with and some of them I've redlined before and already got a pound of flesh. And I know exactly what they're gonna, you know, what they're gonna agree to or not. So there really is no need to get into that in order to make the deal. We can just make a deal based on the deal memo or the email, and then um, and then worry about the long form after the fact. Um, and if they don't come, to, if they don't agree to whatever I'm proffering in terms of a counter. I go back to the client and say, well, they wouldn't go down. Do you want to you want to try them again or you want to respond to their counter, to our counter? Or do you want to go, given that, do you want to try the other person because maybe they're more amenable and maybe you like them more now that you've heard that they won't do what you want to do? And so then um, I'll go, and, but usually only negotiate with one at a time. Um, it's just uh, you don't negotiate with two entities at the same time because if they both accept you, if you gave them, if you counter both of them, they both said yes, then you've um, you've committed fraud. <laughs> so you don't want to do that. Um, so you only deal with one at a time until there's an acceptance of an offer. Then you then you have a deal. And sorry, a term sheet is what? A term sheet usually um, um, is just a either piece of paper or a, a PDF that has the basic terms of an agreement, not all the language of the agreement. So it'll spell out, usually a term sheet will have the length of the contract, the rights, the maybe not all the, like it'll say um, video on demand rights, DVD and Blu-ray rights, advertising video on demand rights, it's what rights they're taking. But it won't have a description of each right, which will be in the long form agreement. Um, it'll have the term. Um, It'll have the, um, if there's a minimum guarantee that they're going to pay um, against the rights, uh, against, against the revenues, then that'll be in the term sheet. Um, and then 
beyond the major things, um, the, depending on the distributor, they might have um, how they, you know, just a quick couple lines on how they do accounting, a quick, quick couple lines on expenses and whether they cap them or not. And so there might be a couple things to flesh out in the term sheet, depending on how specific or, or not specific the term sheet is um, before we go to long form to make sure, okay, we don't want to agree to this because there's a little ambiguity in the term sheet in terms of like accounting rights. So let's be sure that what we mean here is quarterly for two years, not just quarter, or quarterly for the whole time or what. You want to be you know, as specific as possible before you say yes. Um, but some of that I already know because I've seen their long forms before. So we can, we can work off just the basic terms in order to make it a deal. So it's almost like a cliff notes yeah. For the, okay, and then the long form is, is how many pages usually? Uh, it depends on the distributor. Um, some, it can be five or six pages. Some, it can be 26, 30 pages. Um, some of them have agreements where they have kind of the basic terms on the first three or four pages, and then what's called a standard terms and conditions document that's kind of stapled to it that kind of gets into the nitty-gritty of everything, defining all the terms, defining all the rights and all those things. So um, it depends It depends on the company to a certain degree how lengthy it is. And what, what is the usual, the standard length of term? Or does it vary depending it, on... It does vary. The, the, the range is 3 to 15. Oh, years? Years. Um, you, do, uh, you do see 20 even from bigger deals, but they're plunking down a lot of money. They're really making it their film. Um, I would say most of my deals are in the seven-year range. Usually we're negotiating down from 15 to seven. Um, but then there are a couple companies that are more aggressive and do like three years. Um, but you find that all companies have you know, executive there that's like, well, we never do below three years or we never do below seven and have their own standard that they just won't, you know, they just won't go below because, and I find that most companies that um, want longer terms, the reason they want longer terms are a couple. One is they have these big libraries and they want to, if new ways to release films come out on the market, they want to have this huge library of films that they can monetize that new way. So for instance, advertising video on demand or AVOD is a relatively new platform. So all these companies that had all these movies suddenly had a whole nother way to monetizing these films. And if they had only had three years, there'd be four or five years of films that they didn't have to put through this, these platforms. Um, another reason is it looks better on your books to have long terms. So if someone's evaluating, if a bank is evaluating your company, um, if you're trying to sell it to someone and you have, you know, 20 films for three years, they're like, well, geez, in three years, you, you, this is nothing, <laughs> you know, like, so, and if, and, it, and you are not going to be able to monetize it with a new uh, platform that comes around like, like AVOD, you know, or something like it. Um, so, um, their assets on the books of these bank of these companies, so banks just value them more if they have longer terms on their contracts. Interesting. And is it reasonable to expect the longer the terms of the contract, the more or the possibility of an advance? 
No, not really. Um, well, um, I should say maybe. Um, the, the companies that are doing three years are not doing advances. Yeah, so I guess, I guess yes is actually the answer to that question. So the companies that are doing seven, 10, 15 years are more likely to do advances. Um, and I think, that's, I think that's because they just don't have to be as aggressive as the three-year. They're usually offering a little bit more than the companies that are doing three years. They have a longer, they've been around longer. Um, they might be doing theatrical on some of their movies. They just have you know, a bigger pipeline. Um, yeah, they're a little bit more, they're not having to be as aggressive to get films than the companies that are doing the three-year terms. I think the movies that I've watched on Tubi, these were all films that have been out for 20 plus years. Uh huh. So yeah, that makes sense yeah. that, that that would be the case for you know wanting them to on their, I don't know, they want them on their books, but established names from filmmakers that have been around a while. Yeah, exactly. Why does Slamdance co-founder and filmmaker Dan Mervish call you a shrewd negotiator? Because <laughs> <laughs> um, I paid him. Okay. All right. That's <laughs> no, good. I don't know. I, um, uh, Dan's a great friend. I, I met him early on in the, in the days of slam dance because um, I think I attended the second slam dance um, and been going ever since. And I've had every year I have two to four movies at slam dance. And then at some point I struck up a friendship with Dan. It's been so long I don't remember when. And then... Um, I remember even when he, you know, when he was going around with his second film, I read it, gave him some comments on it. I don't think I had anything to do with that one. And then later on, I've sold a couple. I've sold now two films for him and kind of consulted him on another one. And um, and Dan's a very, you know, Dan is a little more, much more knowledgeable than your average indie filmmaker. Um, so he's definitely a big part of the process. When I'm helping, when I when I have helped him sell a film, and um, and so there's a shorthand there too, and so I think he, I think more than anybody, he knows a little bit more than my average client what I know, um, and how helpful I can be, and so, like like I said, there are some people like you know Dan Dan could probably take the time, and do what I do and get everybody to watch the film, it might it would probably take longer because he, he's not doing it year round like I am. And I think that's why, and, he, and because I stare at it and I know all these things, he knows by experience what I know. Um, and, um, and yeah, and then it, it, when it comes to negotiation, um, that's fun because it's a, we, we go back and forth in terms of like how we're gonna try to um, influence the buyer that he likes to do, do the best by it, so. How do you negotiate the best deal for a movie? Um, well, to a certain degree, um, I, you know, I think that most films I'm working on are going to this certain level of distributor and there's only a certain range that we're going to be negotiating. And I already know going in what the best position that these negotiators will do for really any film if it hits that range. So there's some films where um, I just know exactly where they'll go, and I know where they won't go, and it's just it's more about communicating to the filmmaker, 
like here are your here are your options. Here's how we can kind of push a little bit or pull a little bit. Um, it get, it does get more interesting when it's a it's a it gets above that level and we're getting theatrical offered and um, and I I find that um, it's best to go to distributors with the position of hey they really want to be with you but here's what you got to do um, I don't I'm not a fan of like you know say well so and so wants it you know are you going to beat them um, I'm not a fan of um, um, telling people what we want up front. Uh, usually if a distributor comes to me and says, well, what do you want? I'm saying, I, I usually say, we want the best possible deal um, because I don't want to undersell it. You know, I want them to come to me with the best possible thing. Um, so there's a little bit of that. Um, I guess I've been doing it so much and so long, I, I don't find it that complicated. A lot of it's intuitive. Um, and, and a lot of it's just knowing knowing who I'm dealing with pretty well and um, and knowing where they'll go and where they won't. So you're not trying any, well, you know, if you don't let us know in five days, I have X, Y, and Z over here that they want it and, you know, you'd be crazy to lose out on this. Just doesn't work. Yeah, it just doesn't. Um, and especially since I'm, you know, I mean, maybe if I was just a one-off person and they didn't know me, and, and had no history of dealing with me, but almost everybody I'm selling films to, I've sold two films for a couple decades, you know. So um, it's uh, there's it's there's it's a lot more um, it's a lot more straightforward and like like this is really the you know I, I also know since I know where they'll potentially go, I know where they won't go. I know not to go to them with something crazy that they won't do. Um, and I have had situations where a filmmaker is like, well, push them anyway. You know, like, hey, you know they won't pay in advance, but ask for one anyway. And I'll do it. I don't care. Um, but I'm always right. I mean, they're, they're not going to, you know, they're not going to do what I know they're not going to do. Um, I don't think I've ever been surprised that way. Um, another rule of thumb there is that if someone's... You know, if someone's made an advance offer, an MG offer, then they're probably movable on it a little bit. If, if, but not, not a hundred percent greater than what they've offered. So if they've offered you twenty thousand. They're probably not going to forty. They might go to twenty-five or thirty. That's a generalization. If they offered nothing, they're probably not offering anything. They're probably not moving even to one thousand dollars because that's just not the way they see it. This transaction, so it's just knowing those things. I think that helps the negotiation. So you you pretty much know the rules of the game, the players in the game, and where those films are going to plug in. And there's probably not a lot of leeway, like you said. If if someone's not going to give a minimum guarantee, they're probably not going to do a thousand or twenty thousand for one. Right. Exactly. Um, that's not to say I am surprised by who wants what, though. And it's not like I like I'm. I'm selling a film right now to HBO. I didn't know HBO was going to want the movie um, or pay a good license fee for it. I had no idea. Um, and my my next best offer was not even close. 
to what they offered. So it's not that I know what's going to happen. I just know once they make the offer, I know I know where, where they'll go and where they won't go. How often are these negotiations in person? And how often are they via email, Skype, yeah, Zoom? Yeah, they're all a combination of Zoom and, and email and phone, um, even pre-COVID, um, overwhelmingly, unless you're selling a film at Sundance. Um, if you're selling a film at Sundance or South by Southwest and it's in person, then you're going to a condo and you're meeting meeting people in person. Um, if um, there have been times though, I guess it, there are occasions though where I have had filmmakers go to meet distributors in Los Angeles um, as part of the process, you know, pre-COVID. Um, but I don't need to be there because I'm just putting them together to meet in order to talk creative and what they do for the film. Um, and then the negotiation will happen um, by phone or, or by um, email afterwards. Because so much of it needs to be in writing. Yeah, there's just no reason to get together. You know, like there's no reason to get in a car and drive 30 minutes to just do what you can do um, pretty, you know, more efficiently by, by phone or email. Sure. Can you explain a deal memo? Um, the, a deal memo is a term sheet at the end of the day. So a deal memo is the basic terms of a deal. Um, the term, the length of the, of the contract, the minimum guarantee if they're going to pay something up front for the movie, the number of years, the rights they're going to take, and then some of the other um, factors that they, every demo is a little bit, or term sheet's a little bit different in terms of what they'll, um, they'll put out there in terms of what they are, you know, the, it's kind of a, it's like you said earlier, Cliff Notes version of the contract. Oh, okay, sorry, I didn't realize that deal memo was the same thing yeah. as term sheet. Okay, maybe you said that. Okay, without naming names, what's the worst distribution deal you've seen a distributor offer one of your films? <laughs> um, that's a great question. Um, well, certainly not one that I ever would allow someone to take. Um, it usually... When I see a bad one, it has to do with how revenues are shared, and they're just the distributor is just taking too much. Um, there are some deals where there are some distributors out there that use other distributors to get their films out into the marketplace, um, and so they're taking a percentage after the distributor who's doing the work is taking a percentage after iTunes is taking a percentage, right? So it went from iTunes to distributor to distributor to you. And some distributors, small, these are smaller companies, don't disclose it uh, and say, hey, you know, this is our distribution fee, but just so you know, we're also going through this other company. There are companies though that do it legitimately and say, okay, this is our distribution fee, and it's inclusive of the distribution company that is actually doing the work, that getting it out there. Or they'll say it is on top of, and yes, it's a big fee, but but that's what we that's the way we do it. This is a little bit more legitimate than hiding it, right? So the worst deal is, is the combination of the fact that it's fee on top of a fee, and they're not revealing, they're just gonna give you a royalty statement that says what came in and what they took from it without explaining that another level of revenue went from 
one person to another person that came to them. That makes sense. Why would a filmmaker even, I mean, why would a company even think that a filmmaker would entertain? It's like an extra middleman. It's not just a middleman. It sounds like a, a... Well, again, some people don't reveal it and they don't know they ask the filmmaker doesn't know they ask the question. Ah. Right? And um, okay. there, I do know one company that will reveal it if you t ask them. But they okay. don't reveal it if they don't if you don't ask them. Hmm. Which and it's just really strange because I like I don't name any names. I like a lot of things about these people. They're really they do other things kind of right, but that one aspect of it, I like. Why? Why? Like, and I guess it's because probably because they're not winning movies, because they have to. The, they, when they do reveal that, some filmers are like, "Well, I can't give you a percentage on top of another percentage." Um. And I know another company, though, that what they figured out to do is to make the company that they go through have their fee inclusive of their fee. So the fee that they're proffering, it might be more like 30, 35% because they're having to account for giving 15% to someone else. But at least, you know, it's, it's more competitive than charging 25 on top of 20, right? Um, so you do get different kinds out there, but overwhelmingly most of my films, all, almost all of my films, almost 100% go through companies that there's just one fee being paid and taken out. Um, there's, there's one distributor I go through who takes a fee but has it inclusive of the company he's going through, and he's a... He's an honorable ex-studio guy who is very straightforward about what he does. And essentially the way, the, the conundrum that distributors, that people have when they become a, they want to become a distributor is how do I get to market, right? Because anybody, I could go tomorrow and say, hey, I'm a distributor. You give me the movie and I go put it on iTunes through a lab. I just pay the encoding fee. Real easy. What's harder is to sell it to cable VOD and to establish a distribution relationship with the streamers and to establish a relationship with Tubi and the other advertising video on demand companies. That's harder to do. And so what some people decide is, hey, I want to distribute movies, but I don't have those relationships. I'll create a partnership with a bigger company. I'll go to the cost of acquiring and marketing the movies and we'll just have a relationship with this company where they are the ones who put it on the platforms and do the sales. And that's fine if you're above board about it and your fee isn't too, and you're able to do a, a fee structure that, in, that doesn't take too much out of a dollar. But if it's, if you don't reveal it, it's quasi criminal to me. Um, it's not criminal, but it's very unethical. Um, and, um, and then, and then just the fee structure is just crazy. You know, like if you do a fee on top of fee, it's just like, how do you, how do you make any money? It's very hard. So if a filmmaker was doing the DIY, wearing the distribution hat themselves and, and they've been approached or they approach someone and they don't realize this is not, that the, there's not just one fee, how are they gonna uncover that? What kind of clues or paper trail or how are they going to do a search to see so um 
some platforms like Amazon and others have in the details of the film, they'll have like the copyright date and a little bit of information. And some of them have the distributor name. And so if the distributor isn't your distributor, uh, most likely they put it through somebody else. Oh, wow. Right. But that would be too late at that point. Oh, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, there's a, there's a, um, there are definitely a lot of, there are a lot of companies that just don't do it properly one way or another. Um, and I just don't send them my movies. It's sure. E easily, easily handled that way. Sure, it's a real fun, you know, it's sort of this omitting very important information. Yeah. Interesting. So there, it would be very difficult until you get to a point where you can't even get out of the contract, it sounds like. Yeah. I mean, like I said, like distribution contracts are hard to get out of. They're not, they're not built to be easy to get out of. And um, especially if you're working with someone who didn't tell you everything up front about how they do business, most likely they don't really care if you want to get out either, right? That's the kind of person they are. So um, that's why it's very important. If, if you are DIYing it, if you are going to distributors or producer reps or anybody, you should be checking IMDb and calling those filmmakers and, and trying to get enough of them to tell you what their experiences were so that you can make a, you know, an, a little bit of an educated decision on, on where to go. Sure, and even in doing that, you can still run into problems. 100%. So people know each other, they could be friends, they could have alliances. Yeah, it's real tricky, but yeah, that's interesting. I, I did not know that. So yeah. that's for, for filmmakers that, um, you know, because in that, that there's a bigger chunk being taken out because there's this extra person. That's right. 